Welcome to the In Doubt Podcast, where we explore the challenging topics that young adults often face. Each week, we talk with guests who help answer questions of faith, life, and culture, connecting them to our daily experiences and God's Word. For more info on In Doubt, visit indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. Thanks for joining us on this episode of In Doubt. My name's Courtney, the In Doubt Coordinator, and I'm so happy you're listening today. On this week's episode, we're talking with author Jonathan Holmes on the topic of marriage. If you're already married in a dating relationship or are single and looking forward to being married, this episode is for you. Isaac and Jonathan start the discussion by challenging the current views on marriage in our culture, recognizing that for many, marriage has become disposable and dispensable and something that should just make you happy. As you listen to this episode, I'd encourage you to hear that marriage isn't the focus, but instead it's a tool that we can use to show God's love for each one of us. By using what God has supplied us with, our singleness, our dating relationship, our spouse, we're ultimately growing closer to God. With all that said, I hope you enjoy this episode. Well, it's great to have with us again, pastor and counselor and author, Jonathan Holmes. Jonathan is a pastor at Parkside Church in Ohio. Uh, And among other things, he oversees the counseling and marriage ministries at the church. It's great to have you with us again, Jonathan. Thank you so much, Isaac. It's great to be back with you too. Jonathan, can you just share with us a little bit of a primer on who you are and how you came to know and to love Jesus? Well, that's a great question. I uh... I grew up in uh, South Georgia. I was uh, adopted at a pretty young age. I grew up in a Christian home and heard the gospel preached and taught pretty much uh, as often as the doors of the church were open. My parents were the type of people where if the church was open, then we were going to be there. And it was great for learning things about Jesus, but maybe not so great in terms of actual heart transformation. And I think later as I grew older, around late elementary, early junior high, I just knew I was going through the motions. Uh, I did not like church, did not like reading the Bible, knew that deep down inside it was just more a set of rules for me uh, rather than the living faith, and uh, experienced a, a pretty radical change uh, around my sophomore, freshman year of high school in that summer. I uh, was on a church camping trip uh, with our youth, and I still remember the speakers. Uh, they brought in these speakers that went around to different youth camps, and they spoke on uh, just the doctrine of repentance. And uh, I think it was the first time I just ever really came to a sense that even my good works were unacceptable to, to making me right with God. And uh, went forward, I, I really uh, was embarrassed and kind of deeply ashamed that here I was in the youth group. Everybody thought I was a Christian. I was really embarrassed to kind of go forward uh, in that kind of proverbial campfire type uh, commitment. But finally, the the Holy Spirit just got a hold of my heart. And the last night of the camp, actually, I, I went forward. And I, I really think that that was the time that I truly gave my life to Christ and made him Lord of my life. And and, and things began to, to, to pretty radically change as it related to my faith and the way that I saw uh, what before had been just works. And these are things that you have to do in more things that were just an overflow of what it meant to be in relationship with God. In the introduction of your new book, which is uh, Counsel for Couples, um, or I think it may be in your first chapter, that speaking the truth in love um, is the heart of what counseling is. I don't know if you use the exact words, but something like that. Um, and you also say that all Christians are supposed to be to be doing this. So I'm just wondering if you could develop this idea for us. Like, wh- where do you find it? W- what exactly does that mean? 
Yeah. You look at the book of Ephesians and the first three chapters are these wonderful, truth-packed, grace-soaked, gospel-infused passages about this is who you are in Christ. And then Paul makes a transition in the latter three chapters talking about because you are in Christ, this is how you should live. So our activity flows out of our identity. So everything that we do flows out of who we are. And in chapter one, he kind of lays out a broad picture. He kind of starts individually. He says, listen, individually, you need to fulfill your calling. You need to be kind and patient and gentle and humble. And then he moves forward and he talks about how when Christ ascended on high, he gave gifts to men. And he talks about the different gifts that he left the church. And he talks about the gifts of the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and shepherds and teachers. And he says all of this was really meant to build up the body of Christ. But when he gets to Ephesians 4, 15 and 16, he broadens it not just to those individual gifts, but he says, and listen, all of us, rather, speaking the truth in love, we, that corporate we, are to grow up in every way into him who is the head uh, by speaking truth in love. And so what Paul does here is he talks about some our growth individually, then he talks about how that individual growth can get facilitated by the different callings and giftings that God has given to the church. But he says, listen, everybody, everybody, though, is called to speak truth and love. And it's actually that transaction when we are speaking into one another's lives, building them up, living out the one another's of the gospel, that we are literally growing up together in Christ-like maturity. And so speaking the truth and love is not just something for an educated few or an educated elite. But it's really something that every believer should be aspiring and practicing to do. Yeah. You know, I know that Paul wouldn't disagree that the fact that we have to speak and also just live our lives in such a way that helps people. But why why specifically is he talking about this idea of speaking, that verbally speaking the truth in love? Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of us say, you know, well, I, I love people, but, you know, I'm not really good with people. I'd rather kind of just stay in the background, be a background player which I understand, but sometimes what that can do is it can lead us to a a, a non-verbal love where we just kind of put put ourselves a little bit in the background and we leave it to other people. We kind of outsource that more verbal aspect. But again, referencing Old Testament in Proverbs 27, 5 through 6, the author says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend and the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. And I think our church is full of a lot of people who say, listen, I love you, but it's hidden. And I don't want to really come out in the open and do the hard work of truth telling and truth speaking. And, you know, the author of Proverbs says, listen, better is open rebuke than hidden love. And better to be open and corrective and to speak truth in love than to keep it under a bushel, as it were. And I find a lot of times that's just our own personal fears and anxieties. Again, going back to what we talked about, the front end of this, you know, just fearing what other people think about us. But it's important that that last constituent element of in love is in place. So all three of those components together make up this matrix of what it looks like to do, I would just say, life in the body. So it's speaking, truth, and love. And so if you try to take one of those out from the other, it's kind of like a three-legged stool. It gets a little wobbly. So you kind of need all three legs there, I think, for really good local church embodied ministry. 
Yeah, that, that's so good. Now, you know, Jonathan, you're a counselor, obviously. You believe in counseling. I believe in counseling. I think it's essential. Um, but I, I think I was reading something recently talking about speaking the truth in love and in, in kind of the, the focus and the theme of discipleship in the church. And I think the author was saying that if more people actually spoke the truth in love to one another, then perhaps there'd be less people, you know, lining up for counseling. Yes. Would you, would you agree with this? I, I would say a hearty amen to that. I, you know, I run a counseling center. And I've told people jokingly that we would love to be put out of business. You know, if we could be put out of business because the local church was full of this type of conversation, that would be ideal. That would be wonderful. And I I absolutely agree that if all of Christ redeemed were doing this work of speaking truth and love, I do think that a lot of the issues that we see in counseling, if not completely eliminated, would be significantly reduced because at some earlier point in that person's life, somebody would have lovingly come up to them and either given them encouragement, edified them through affirmation, confronted them in their sin, called them out on something. That would have already taken place before, you know, 5, 10, 15 years down the road, they're coming to us for counseling to deal with this issue that's had, you know, endless amounts of time to, to, to grow and to be nurtured apart from any type of confrontation. Absolutely. I think that's, that's really important. Now your book, let's get to your book here, Counsel for Couples. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but you've primarily written this book for pastors um, and to help them, or maybe church leaders as well, and to help them in counseling uh, those that are, are married. So I, I guess my question for you is what brought you to spend all the time and the energy you have spent on this specific kind of direction here? What, you know, why not just write a book directly helping those marriages? No, no, you're absolutely right. And, and it's, a, it's a great question. I think that the reason that the audience is primarily for pastors and ministry leaders, and, 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 and the reason why the book is written for that audience is because I personally couldn't find anything out there that addressed a lot of these topics. And so people would email me and I'd be researching, you know, and hey, here's five different articles or here's two books. But there wasn't just a central resource that just laid out a basic methodology of, you know, how do I do just good interpersonal care for people that then also covered the practical topics that you encounter in most marriage counseling situations. So issues ranging from abuse to infertility to issues with their children to being married to an unbeliever. Uh, I would get email after email or phone call or consultation after consultation saying, hey, I have this couple with X problem. What do I do? And so selfishly, I wrote the book so that I didn't have to answer those emails anymore. I could just tell them to read something in the book. But in all honesty, I wrote it really to, to be a service, not only to myself, but to other people that we could do this type of care and this type of work uh, in the best way possible in a way that really honored Christ. Yeah. I think uh, kind of as a side question, as I was thinking about this this idea that you're writing for pastors to help them help others in their congregations, um, and I think in your book as well, you kind of give reasons why there's already benefits of a pastor helping uh, a couple that he already knows and so on and so forth. But, you know, in your years of pastoral ministry, Jonathan, how would you um, describe the general or maybe just the average churchgoer's perception of their pastor and just pastors in general? Because I, I, if I, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like there'd be some maybe North American kind of couples who would rather just kind of 
you know, do things on their own, maybe go find a book on their own to try to do it on their own because they, you know, maybe they they don't have the same respect like they used to do for their pastor and so on and so forth. Yeah. Anyways, how would you handle that? You know, it, you're you're bringing up a really important point, Isaac, and I think it probably does vary from congregation to congregation. Maybe I'll put out the ideal scenario. In an ideal scenario where a couple is at a church where there is a level of trust with their pastor, a level of respect, and a level of just trust in his competency and in his abilities that pastors make for natural counselors. Not that they would be the only counselors, but that a couple would feel comfortable at some point in their struggle coming to their pastor and saying, hey, we need some help, or could you, uh, would you mind meeting with us and talking with us? And that's for a variety of reasons. You know, they, they see their pastor regularly. They probably have had some interpersonal interactions with them. Uh, there's typically no fee to see your pastor. Like, you don't have to pay your pastor like $50 to set up a meeting with him. So it, it kind of offers a level of care with an outside mediator that for a lot of churchgoers, I do think is appealing for them. Now, for the person that that maybe, Isaac, you're referencing where there might not be as good of a relationship or that level of trust, then that's where that paradigm breaks down a little bit in terms of, you know, a couple might not feel comfortable going to the pastor because they're not as plugged into their church or they don't have a good relationship or good rapport with their pastor or uh, in many ways, they've maybe been hurt by a pastor in their past, where maybe a pastor or a ministry leader has not really offered really good, biblical, wise, compassionate care, so they are a little turned off to that. So the book really is designed to offer a corrective to the latter, but also an encouragement to the former. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I think about uh, people listening, young adults listening, maybe they're in relationships, maybe uh, they're considering marriage, maybe they are married. Um, you know, at the beginning of your book, you do emphasize your foundation when it comes to counseling couples is God's word. You make that a very straightforward point right at the beginning. Um, and as people hear that, you know, they might think, well, isn't it supposed to be, you know, aren't we supposed to do some sort of you know, emotional tests with one another and and so on and so forth. So maybe elaborating on what you've already talked about, what exactly do you mean uh, by the fact that you, you're basing everything that you're saying about counseling couples in God's word? And I, is that easier said than actually done? Right, right. It's, it's a good question. I think especially like you recognized and alluded to, Isaac, about with younger couples where just the primacy of God's word in everyday life feels a little bit more like an aphorism and, you know, something to sell books, but doesn't really hit home uh, in everyday life. And the illustration I use, you know, it's a silly one, but we've all seen Little Mermaid and, you know, Ariel and Little Mermaid, she's collecting all these things from, you know, the the, the real human world. And she has all these, these forks down in her cave. And she asks, you know, the seagull, she says, hey, what is this? And the seagull says, oh, it's a dinglehopper and human beings use it to, to brush their hair. And, you know, she takes his word for it and she goes with it. And, you know, she transforms into a person with legs. And one day she's having dinner with Prince Eric and his court. And she sees the fork on the table and she picks it up and she starts to comb her hair with it. And everybody kind of looks at her really puzzled. And, and all that to say that a lot of times if we see something, but we don't know what its original design and intention is, we can misuse it and misappropriate it. And I find that a lot of people think that they know what marriage is, but they've never actually talked to the person who created marriage. And so they think, oh, marriage is about my happiness. It's about having a good life, having emotional uh, you know, safety and intimacy with somebody. It's finding somebody who completes me. 
It's finding somebody who meets my strengths and weaknesses. But if you're going to understand what marriage is really about, you have to talk to the person who created it and who designed it. And that's God. And the way that he has revealed his design for marriage is in Scripture. Uh, he's told us that this is what marriage is for. This is why he brought Adam and Eve together. And this is what the marriage union is all about. So if you don't have God's word as a foundation for marriage that practically informs it, you're going to be a little bit lost. You might have a good marriage even, right? The fork can definitely comb your hair, but I guarantee you that's not why the person who created the fork made the fork. Uh, and so a lot of people might be involved in a really good marriage thinking, hey, this is good, but you actually might not be living God's purpose and story and design for your marriage. Yeah. You know, I, I want to take this opportunity right now because I think we should take advantage of it. Jonathan, what is God's vision for marriage? So if someone's listening and you're saying that, you know, the Bible provides that, I just think we're missing it if you just don't say it because I think yes, people need to absolutely. know. absolutely. Ephesians 5.32 says, This mystery is profound, talking about marriage, about man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife. Paul says, This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage is a story that tells an unbelieving world about God's relationship to us, that God joins himself to us, that he reconciles us through his son to himself. And so marriage then, as a relationship, has what I call a gospel storytelling power, that the way that couples do marriage actually has an opportunity to tell a story of the gospel. And we, a lot of times, just miss that. And that's why bad marriages are, in many ways, bad testimonies for the gospel. It's like a chapter of a book that's not been edited and doesn't make any sense. Uh, we need to have marriages that aren't perfect, but that are striving towards that goal of glorifying God through the way that we love and serve our spouse. And as you know, marriages today, especially for younger couples, marriage is very disposable. It's very dispensable. It's a bit antiquated. It's just a piece of paper. It's about what makes you happy. Uh, we have starter marriages now where, hey, you start on one marriage, but then you just discard it for another one. Marriage is anything but what God originally designed and intended it to be. And so in many ways, counsel for couples is a restorative kick in the gut to say, hey, for marriages that aren't telling good stories of the gospel, how can we attack that? How can we address that uh, through gospel-centered counsel? Yeah. And I think you would probably agree with the truth that, you know, as you start to apply more biblical principles to your marriage on your way to, you know, trying to be more like Christ in the church and, and doing that, it's not going to get rid of trials in your marriage, but I think there will be a greater satisfaction in the souls of both the husband and the wife. Right. Absolutely. There's going to be ups and downs in any marriage. That's a fundamental reality, this side of heaven. But the difference in a gospel-centered marriage is that there is a motivation and a power, a power inside of you and a motivation inside of you that says, listen, you can pursue your spouse for the glory of God. You can live for the good of another person because of who Christ is and because of what he saved and designed and created you to be. And in many ways, I think that actually brings a greater level of fulfillment to you as a person and as a couple than just 
living for your own happiness, you know, living for your own marital bliss, as it were. Yeah, no, absolutely. And just for the listeners, just to go back two seconds here, just want to encourage you that if that's a completely new reality of marriage that you've never heard before, then don't feel like kind of, you know, foolish. I, I remember growing up in the church, I grew up in a great family, and it wasn't until my first year Bible college that the, my mentor told me that that was the, the vision of marriage, and I was dumbfounded. I had no idea. So it's okay if that's the first time you've heard that, but it's it's important. I'd encourage you to keep pressing on. So Yeah. And, and, and Isaac, in Council for Couples, at the back in one of the appendices, I tried to include a number of gospel-centered resources. So it's not just my book that I want to promote, but there's a number of other wonderful, solid resources out there for both premarital and marriage that can really help couples who, like you said, maybe are not as aware of what God's intention and design for marriage is. You know, there's a lot of resources out there, secondary, of course, to Scripture, that can help you on that path. That's so good. Jonathan, from your work on this book, what are a few practical things that you could say to uh, young adults who are maybe in relationships, they're looking forward to marriage in the future? Uh, What would you say to maybe challenge them, encourage them, what they should do even today to kind of bring them towards that vision? Yeah, I would say, you know, what makes for a good husband and a good wife is what makes for a good Christian, what makes for a good child of God. You know, Scripture, and I tell people this all the time, and it's odd coming from someone who wrote a book on marriage, but the Bible doesn't actually have a lot to say about marriage. You know, outside of a passage in Ephesians, a passage in Colossians 3, Genesis 2, uh, the Bible has a lot more to say about how we greet one another, how to build a tabernacle than it actually does about marriage. And that might surprise a lot of people. And I think that that's intentional on God's part, because what he seems to be saying throughout the story is, hey, this is what it looks like to flourish and thrive as a human being. And that when you're doing that as a human being, somebody who is living out their fullest uh, ideal of being an image bearer of God, that that's going to translate into marriage. So in Ephesians 4, 1, where it talks about uh, living your calling and being someone who is long-suffering and patient and humble and eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Well, good news, that that's going to reap dividends then in marriage. And so sometimes I think people think, well, you know, is there a specific skill set that I need for marriage? Or maybe I need to sharpen up on my communication skills, or maybe I need to do this or that. And those are all helpful, but just, just live the Christian life how God's designed and intended it for you. Uh, be a person who is slow to anger, quick to hear, and uh, who's quick to listen and slow to speak. You know, those those imperatives that we get throughout the pages of the New Testament of what it looks like to be in Christ and to be a part of this body make for people who do well in marriage. Yeah, no, that's so good. You know, to we'll, we'll finish up here, Jonathan. We were talking earlier about speaking the truth in love. That this is kind of the heart of counseling, in a sense, and the whole body of Christ, uh, no matter their you know relational context, whether they're single or married or engaged or whatever, they are to do this. So perhaps this is this is a very specific question, but maybe you could speak into it. For those listening that are are hearing this and they're like, well, yes, this is great. This is what marriage is about, and they're they're single. How can they, or what maybe steps can they take to begin uh, to have the courage to speak the truth in love to maybe those couples that are in their life that they can actually help and encourage? Because I think that's a, I mean, people are scared to um, encourage and challenge, you know, moms in their mothering and <laughs> and dads in their fathering and especially dads in their way they love their wives and, and so on and so forth. So how would you encourage single Christians to, to have the courage to, um, to speak the truth in love to those? 
It, it, it's such a good question. I'm so glad that you brought it up because, you know, again, we talk a lot about marriage, but I wouldn't want anybody who uh, finds himself single, widowed, divorced, to think that they are in a lesser tier of Christianity. That is not the case at all. God prioritizes single people. Scripture moves in a pro-single direction in many ways. We aren't going to be given and offered in marriage in heaven. We all relate to one another as friends in Christ. So single people absolutely have a significant place to play in the family of God, Uh, specifically, like you said, as it relates to working and ministering and speaking truth and living life with other married couples. And a lot of times I find that younger single people might be intimidated to enter into a family unit, to speak truth and love to a husband or a wife, a father or a mother, because they think, well, because I am not this, there's nothing that gives me credibility to speak into that. And so what it does is it says that the basis of your counsel is on your experience or uh, whatever you know, and not the word of God. You know, Jesus Christ was never married and never had any kids, but yet he gave terrific parenting advice and terrific marriage advice. So the sole arbiter of whether or not you can offer counsel is not your experience. Again, taking us back to what we talked about earlier, it's your confidence in God's word. So can single people speak truth and love to married people? You betcha. Absolutely. Because because we are all part of one body and we are designed to speak truth and love. It's not speak the truth and love if you map onto the exact same experiences as the person that you're speaking to. And again, sometimes when we have that mentality, it's actually because we're focusing on ourselves. We're focusing on what we have done or what we've not done or a fear of what others might think of us. We're not really placing our confidence in God's word. We're not really placing our confidence in the person and work of Christ. And so to all of my single brothers and sisters out there, please step up to the plate, get involved, find community, find other married people and push in, move in. We desperately need you. Yeah, that's so good, Jonathan. And I think you really hit a great point talking about the fact that so many of us feel like unless we have experience in a certain area, we can't speak truth and help build up and encourage. But you're absolutely right with Jesus. Paul, same thing. He was most likely single and he was saying some really strong things uh, to to married couples and to the fathers of their children and so on and so forth. So I think that is just, that is just critical. So I, I appreciate that. I want to just open up, say, is there anything else about your book, about this topic that we've been talking about that you would just like to share before we, we wrap things up? Yeah, you know, I hope that the book is a help to pastors, ministry leaders. The book is also able to be a resource for couples. And so it might not be specifically designed and written in a way that a couple might typically think of a marriage book, but there are definitely truths and applications that you can take from any of the chapters on any of the topics I cover Uh, And you can glean help from it, whether it's the chapter on conflict resolution or on communication or addressing the problems of rebellious children. There is going to be ways that you can take the truth. So I'd encourage all your listeners, if you have opportunity to to pick up a copy and and really seek to either help other marriages in your church, in your context, be better for the glory of God or to address issues in your own marriage to become better for the glory of God. And and that's really my prayer and my hope for, for people who utilize and read the book. That's so good. Well, thank you so much, Jonathan. If you're listening and you're interested in Jonathan's new book, Counsel for Couples, I'd encourage you to, to find it, to grab it, to read it, um, to maybe offer it to your pastor. 
You might also be interested in his earlier book, The Company We Keep in Search of, um, of Biblical Friendships. You can check that also out. We'll put the links to both of those books on our episode page. But anyways, Jonathan, it was so great to be able to talk with you again. Oh, thank you. It was great to reconnect with you, Isaac, and with your listeners. Thank you so much for listening today. As Isaac had mentioned, we'll have the links on the episode page online for both of Jonathan's books, The Company We Keep in Search of Biblical Friendship, and Counsel for Couples, A Biblical and Practical Guide for Marriage Counseling. If there's anything that you'd like to share with us, feedback, ideas, or critiques, I'd encourage you to send us a DM on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, or you can email us at info at Thanks again for joining us for this episode, and I look forward to having you with us next week. Thanks so much for listening. If you want to hear more, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify, or visit us online at indoubt.ca or indoubt.com. We're also on social media, so make sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. 